Hi, Internet. My name is Jonathan Matos. And this is Melissa Matos. <clears throat> Welcome to Unboxing Story, where we explore the narrative of the feels. Diet. <laughs> what? I changed I changed the slogan, and I forgot where I changed it to. We unpack our feels about fringe fiction. Unpack there we our go. feels. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa doesn't like millennial slang. No. And I can't blame her, really, but... I, I really don't like that everybody seems to think that I am a millennial, which is a little weird for me. I am not one of those heathen slimes. No, it's not that. It's just not me. I, I'm, I am on. You're the, not the derogatory. I am on connotation the, of it. I am on the cusp between Gen X and. I am on the edge. Gen X and the jagged edge of the barren wasteland that is millennial. My feeling is, if you had to deal with three by five floppy disks. That you don't shouldn't get the that crap. I don't that. get. I don't get to be called a millennial. Uh -huh. That's just my. Opinion. I don't even really know what the technical range is. I just know it's you. It's all the you. It's all you. <laughs> not a range. <laughs> I am not a range. I contain multitudes. Nineteen eighty ish. They cut it off somewhere around eighty or eighty three, something like that. Okay. To. I don't think the two thousands, the mid nineties, maybe. But I don't really get. I don't really get the anthropological meaning of it. Like, yeah. are they saying people that came to? No, people that were born came of age, in me. those years are millennials. Interesting. People born in the seventies and eighties are, or sixties and seventies. Well, thankfully, our current cultural milieu is not the topic of this episode. Our boomers, no, because we have no idea. We have escaped about. to the the brilliant past where literature was literature um, <laughs> um i actually don't know much about men philip were roth. men dang it yeah yeah where uh i don't know much about philip roth specifically but um i chose this sort of story also because um they read it on strip cover lit i've kept bringing up their channel but one thing about their channel is that uh, they've they've been really good about selecting short stories that um are kind of a snapshot of a certain time. Um, they they kind of got me into reading uh, Ernest Hemingway, um, and they're they're good about doing different varieties of stories. And this was an interesting one because it's from the perspective perspective. It's from the perspective of somebody who's Jewish. Um, it's about the war. It's about um, kind of this time period and and you know, masculinity around this time, what it meant. And it's about America. It's about a lot of different, different things. Um, specifically to put it in a cultural context, uh, this short story that we were reading or that we read um, was Defender of the Faith. Uh, and it was published in March of 1959, but it's about the time period between VE Day and VJ Day which was, uh, and it, say, it says, like, uh, weeks after B.E. Day, and where, for those of you who don't know, was when we won World War II, or the Allies The won. European theater. Yeah. It was the end of the fighting in Europe, and... Uh, but before the end of the fighting in Japan. Right. So uh, the, the Japanese didn't surrender until September of 1945, and we uh, the Americans didn't bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki until... August. So this is like weeks after we uh, they won in Europe, um, but months away from the, from the um, atomic, bomb. atomic bomb. 
So um, our main character is uh, Marx. Uh, is it like Nathaniel Marx? Nathan Marx? I yeah. didn't think it was Nathan. Um, Norman Marx? Who knows? Um, <laughs> no one knows. There's no way of finding out. Uh, we don't all have supercomputers in our pocket. Um, Nathan, you're right. Nathan yeah. Marks. Uh, and he is coming out of having fought very heavily in the European theater. Um, and he has a kind of like emotional detachment. There's a line where it, that says basically, um, it's basically saying like, I was able to hear the cries of children and, you know, see people like older people wounded people and like not I, I didn't react you know he he learned to stop kind of feeling for those those different things um but then he becomes the sergeant in a training um training camp in in the United States um but then comes up against uh this uh trainee named um Grossbart. Gross, yes, Grossbart. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that Grossbart knows that Marx is Jewish. And the, the way that he brings it up is kind of funny because he's like, you know, like Karl Marx and the Marx Brothers. So I feel like that really much, pretty much encapsulates. Um, it's kind of like a symbol to me because it right away you get that this guy isn't. Um, there's something insincere about him. And he's kind of saying like Karl Marx and Marx Brothers, it's the same thing. I think he was trying to he was trying to goad Marx uh -huh. with those statements. He was he's he's testing him. Right. He does that a lot at the beginning. Yeah. And, he wants but, to see how Marx reacts to things. Right. But I feel like the in in so doing it, like that I think that's a really good way it's a really good writerly way and it's a, it's symbolic of a larger struggle that they go through throughout their short story that he conflates like there's nothing really to what he's saying but he's just like you know like we're right he does he, he does that several times at that opening so it's the whole oh yeah you know you're like those other guys and then he he's talking about how they don't get to go to services because there's like everybody on friday nights is cleaning up the barracks and uh -huh. Friday nights is when the Jews are supposed to go to serve. And he keeps calling it services. And at first I thought it was a little weird, but mm -hmm. then he goads Marx into reacting with calling it what they would call it. Right. Instead. Yeah. So the, 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 the kind of, it, I should say the kind of setup is that at first when, when he interacts with him, there are some, um, <clears throat> he's not really, he's saying like, well, it's not really that like they're forcing us to not go to the synagogue. Right on Friday nights. But what he's saying is that the other soldiers think that they're make are making them feel like, Oh, well you're just ditching. You're just the ditching work. Yeah. Like you're doing this so that you don't have to work. And so he's saying like these Gentile bullies are, you know, persecuting us. Right. And yeah. so, uh, it's interesting because Marx's religious beliefs aren't really what are important. I think right. within the story, his he kind of mentions like I am of the faith that that Thurston is. It's another officer, and or sergeants aren't officers. That's another kind of interesting thing throughout the story. 
but um, there's somebody else that is Christian, or or you get the idea that might be Christian, and that he might have some cultural, more culturally in common with him now. Right. But it's not really that he's a practicing and Catholic. I don't think he's a practicing or, anything. Yeah. But what I find interesting is that it, it becomes important to him in that moment to be like, oh, this guy thinks I'm Jewish and I'm not Jewish. Like mentally he says something like, I'm of the faith of Thurston, but I'm not about to correct this guy. What are you talking no, about? I thought part? he was saying that because he, I thought that, uh, how do I say that? <laughs> he, he thought that the other guy was lumping him in with Thurston, even though he's not like him. Well, no, but Thurston isn't Jewish. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. I thought that Marx thought that Grossman, Grossbart, sorry, I did the same mistake that the guy in the story did. Yeah. Uh, Grossbart, if if Marx didn't react the way Grossbart wanted him to, that Grossbart would lump him in with Thurston. Okay. You know yeah. What I mean? Okay. I I, I, think I don't I think that Marx was lumping himself in with Thurston. I think he was trying to to balance between if I don't do how this guy wants me to do, then he's going to lump me in with all the other people who don't care. Okay. I'm trying or to find the I'm trying better. to find the exact line, but I kind of interpret it. I I, I interpreted it differently that he was trying to say. Uh, but I I think regardless, my uh, I would say that the point the point that I'm that I'm getting at is that. It's it's less about the 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 specifics of being Jewish and about like doctrinal things, and uh, you start getting the idea that um, it's it's about how he's Marx is becoming detached about about his emotions, right? And so you start getting that he has lost. Um, he has lost something of himself in the war and what Grossbart is trying to take advantage of is his insecurity about losing that part of himself. Right. I found the paragraph if you want me to read it. Oh, sure. So he's, he's asking him, your name is Marx, right? You spell it like the Marx brothers and Carl, that's how you do the same thing. Right. So then the guys like Fishbein said, he stopped. What I mean to say, Sergeant, his face and neck were red and his mouth moved, but no words came out. In a moment, he raised himself to attention, gazing down at me. It was as though he had suddenly decided he could expect no more sympathy from me than from Thurston, the reason being that I was of Thurston's faith and not his. The young man had managed to confuse himself as to what my faith really was, but I felt no desire to straighten him out. Very simply, I didn't like him. So I took that to mean he was now assuming because Marx was being the way Thurston was being, mm. that he was the same face of faith as Thurston. Right. Not that he actually was. Right. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, I think maybe it, it's, it might be purposely ambiguous. But then, because then he keeps calling it services and stuff until he finally gets him to call it shul, mm. which is the proper term for it. Right. And then he's like, okay, you are like us. Right. So, it's okay. But yeah, I think that's the thing is that I think Marx, regardless, Marx is so detached that it's not really important to him anymore what his faith is. Right. That that much I will give. And that I think you're right in that within that paragraph, it's more about what Grossbart's trying to assume based on his behavior. Right. And that if he were Jewish, obviously he would be cutting him some slack. Um, so we get that 
he's starting to play like you know they're the other soldiers are you know making us feel uh like we're like we're saying that we're being persecuted because um or or we we feel like they think when we want to go to services that or go to show that we're trying to get out of work and so it would be nice if you could try clarify to clarify that or whatever yeah. so he brings it up to Barrett who is introduced as this kind of ignorant person very and so i <laughs> yeah but i I'm think like, they keep calling the rabbi the chaplain right. i'm like what is going on Although well, I guess technically in the army they do call them all chaplains, maybe I don't know. Well, so so I the notes that I put for Barrett was that uh, uh, Marx explains to Barrett who is ignorant but right. <laughs> so I might think I think what they're kind of setting up, and I think I, this is something that I like from Roth's voice is that he sets up this kind of nuanced situation where you're starting to see that Grossbart is kind of making a stir. Yeah. And I think in any society, you can kind of expect there to be some pushback to this, especially in something like the military. In World War II at this time, there would be people that would be like, who cares? Like, we're getting yeah. shot at. Like, dude, can you? And, and, part of, and so what Barrett introduces is this guy could care less about Jews. There's nothing progressive about this guy. He doesn't care about the rights of these people. You're a soldier is a soldier, right? And the be- the more you're willing to sacrifice of your individuality, the better soldier you are, right? While at the same time, you're the the main character has this very has this very nuanced conflict that he's having, right? Where he's like, I would I understand this because I am Jewish, and he he is the one that actually has a decision to make because. He wants to be, um, he wants to be honor that Jewishness in him, and and protect that in what it stands for. But he also has been through all this stuff and had to sacrifice a lot of his individuality in order to survive this war thing. So Barrett, to me, kind of symbolizes that thing of like, of course, like you're a soldier. Yeah, it's like you, check you, it out. you know, you you. You, um, we, we give you to eat, you if, go to services when we tell you to go to service. Like, I don't yeah. care what you call yourself. This is what you're doing. This is the army, buddy. Right. Um, so Marx kind of takes the initiative and orders LaHill, who um, is... That, that guy's ignorant. Barrett is is not... I mean, he's ignorant in a sense, but he's more like, I'm, I have an army to run here. I don't care. This guy... I don't like this guy. You know, like, wait, LaHill? Isn't LaHill the one who goes and makes the announcement... Oh yeah, because he says Jewish. Jewish he calls mass it Jewish or something. Mass. I'm like, what? Yeah. Well, what the, are you that, talking about? That's an interesting thing because I do not know much about. I religion, find it interesting that it was that, it that visceral to you because I thought it was very subtle to me because they set up they set up that he is oafish. Yes, right? he's like he has hair coming out of everywhere, everywhere in his uniform, and he's very like big and stuff like that. And but really, the only thing you get of his character is that that line. Where he says like Jewish mass is, you know, yeah, go line up. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because you, um, that it's setting up this, and and that's one thing that the that Adrian and, and Dalton talked about with the short story is that Roth was very good at creating this world with very sparse yeah characters. Yeah, it's like it's like this is a sitcom that you're coming into 
halfway through the season. And right. it's very well, you know, written that way. It's just um, you have to think of how so I know <laughs> it, it's odd because depending on your own religious background and what things you believe or may or may not know, like uh-huh. yes, on one hand it could be excusable that this may be something not a lot of people know about. Mm-hmm. Like what the proper terms for your religious service is called or whatever. Uh-huh. But at the same time, the fact that they are Jewish and you were throwing in their face something that is all about Christ. <laughs> like you can't call it mass. Like right. that is the most big affront you can do to them because it's uh-huh. not what they're doing. And I think that that's the, that's the part of it that is, um, that is real in it is that none of these characters are, I think, their entire character is not made up of hatred for Jews. No, there's nothing. It's just a like specifically malevolent about swath their characters. Of ignorance. Like they but, have no yeah, idea. But, but ignorance is baked into the characters. Right. They're just like I want to interact with you as as little as possible because you should be out there learning how to die yeah. efficiently. Go shoot things. Right. So it's like it's more painting these characters, and that's that's what I like about the Lahill character that you see for the brief insisted that you do is that he's just like oh, okay i'll go tell the jews that this it, their, yes, their mass starting. is coming because it's it, he's just a blunt instrument he's right. somebody for the officers to tell to make announcements and that's it, it within the military world that's what you have you have these guys that make announcements um so marx follows them to the service um to the show oh and I think I'm not sure where we get this from Barrett, so I wanted to, to say this. There's another kind of um, symbol that I thought was interesting, where he he thinks like he's going to say it's the heart that makes you who right. you are, and it's, it's but it's, it's it's your gut, and he, he's like pointing at, and he notices the buttons, I guess, because he's kind of big. Um, but I thought that that was a good symbol for what this story is kind of talking about. That there's a difference between your heart. And that's where I think you start getting into the masculinity things. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're seen as a weak if you have compassion for someone. Right. What makes you a man is your gut, your ability, your fortitude, what you can endure. But then there are those ideas of what kind of America are we fighting for? Are we fighting to keep the individual and his beliefs in, are what's important? Or are we fighting to... Like, are we trying to preserve, are we not trying to preserve individuality? Like, right. do you have to sacrifice that in order to do this fight? Um, so that they go to Shoal and there's kind of that dual thing of, of it's called services, but it's really Shoal. It's the, the first part calls him a, a, a chaplain and it's rabbi. Um, and he on the way there, he remembers back to playing in a in a uh, playground in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and that's where I think you get more that this this really stands for his innocence, as opposed to his personal beliefs. It's about like I being with these other people that are Jewish reminds me of how I grew up. Right. He refers to his grandmother later when right. when he calls him. I forget what, what word he uses. Oh, yeah. He's just like a pet name for him or whatever. Right. Uh, like a Yiddish. Slang term. Yeah. Uh, and like that's what my grandmother used to call me. So that that's 
that's what it means to the main the narrator the nathaniel character is like uh, this is how this is reminding me of of my own saturday you know afternoons and things like that and he well and and i guess then as an extension like a callback to everything that he isn't anymore right he had to give up so much of his innocence and so much of his former self mm-hmm. to survive watching all those people die mm-hmm. and he doesn't have it anymore and so that's i think what he really fears losing mm-hmm. when he's when he's confronted with supposedly losing the Jewish side of himself is that the last vestige of what he used to be right before the war. Yeah, and a little bit later we get some allusions as to what maybe he sees himself as now, um, and we can we can get to that a little bit later. But uh, I'm trying to find the. Uh, Exact line because I liked I liked the whole passage um, about what what he what, he kind of refers to it as a reverie and that he's kind of allowing himself to experience um, something that he hasn't for for a very long time. Um, but uh, the oh, but within the within the service you get the fact that the Grossbart and his friends, his friends are Fishbein and uh, Haldeman, Halpern, Halpern. They're, they keep talking about um, how the girls are going to be serving them food right. after this, the, the service. And they don't, uh, one of them doesn't have their uh, prayer book open. And then when they notice that Marx is coming in, they open it up and there's like acting like they've been right. The only one I, that I think actually ever cared about going to show was Halpern. Mm-hmm. I think it's Halpern. Is Halpern the one that get, gets sick on the right. the food? Too? Yeah, yeah. All right, so here, here's the line, the passage. Even after they had disappeared over the parade ground, whose green was now a deep blue, I could hear Grossbart singing to double time cadence. And as it grew dimmer and dimmer, it suddenly touched a deep memory as did the slant of the light. And I was remembering the, the shrill sounds of a Bronx playground where, years ago, beside the Grand Concourse, I had played on long spring evenings such as this. <clears throat> it was a pleasant memory for a young man so far from peace and home, and it brought so many recollections with it that I began to grow exceedingly tender about myself. In fact, I indulged myself in a reverie so strong that I felt as though a hand were reaching down inside me. It had to reach so very far to touch me. It had to reach past those days in the forests of Belgium and past the dying I'd refused to weep over, past the nights in German farmhouses whose books we'd burned to warm us, past endless stretches when I had shut off all softness I might feel for my fellows, and I had managed even to deny myself the posture of a conqueror, the swagger that I, as a Jew, might well have worn as my boots whacked against the rubble of Wessel Munster and Brushen-like. Um, so I, I feel like that's another interesting part of this is that it's interesting that this comes after such a meaningful victory <coughs> and that there are parts of it that he's like, <coughs> he's very proud of what they've accomplished in the war effort. You get some of that in the beginning too, but there's part of it that is like, I've lost so much of myself from this experience. And so 
you kind of have this thing of like, I, as a Jew, I should feel so, so happy about <coughs> where we've come and how, <coughs> how, you know, we've, we've conquered the Germans and this should be like a time when I can move on and finally have peace. But it kind of refuses to have that simplicity of, you know, that he wants it to have. He wants it to feel like I can finally have some peace and, and it kind of refuses to get there. Um, right. So, yeah, we'll take a quick break and we'll do some ad reads and we'll see you on the other side. So we get from the rabbi at this point that he's like, you know, I know you guys are very long suffering. And that this was kind of, I think, funny that the rabbi is doing this because the rabbi isn't put in the same category as these other characters. Like a part of it, I think is it's very realistically written, uh, like just out of teenage boys. They're young adults. Yes. So yes. it's not like they're you. It's very realistic that they're like this, mm-hmm. that they're very, you know, immature in their social interaction. But the rabbi is just like, you know, like, man, you guys, I'm, I'm so sorry for you. But uh, I don't know. I don't know that it's it's obvious that he's doing this because Marx is there. I don't know if he's on. I don't know if he knows what Grossbart's going to be doing after that. Like, I don't think he's in on that. At no, all. I don't think he's in on but, that either. Um, it is just kind of funny because it's like, you know, it, it, it seems very apropos that he has this line about like, you know, we do what we have to do in order to, you know, have this life. Um, but you know, the irony is that, you know, what Grossbart's been doing and you can kind of see like, oh, he's, that's the next thing on the docket that he's going to try to torture Marks over. Um, and so the food issue is that what the, the muck that they have to eat <laughs> is, is not kosher. Is not kosher at all. Um, it's like ham byproduct. Um, so he initially is trying to get, uh, Marks to do something about this and uh Grossbart well first you it's a it's a letter like Marks gets called by his commanding officer uh Barrett and Barrett's like you know who, how, what like who sent a letter to to their congressman yeah there's a, a congressman got written a letter and it basically is tearing them a new one for like forcing the, the Jewish people in there right, to, eat, terrible to eat this stuff. And he doesn't really necessarily have, a, he's not going to like saying like, Marks, you're going to get fired. But he's basically saying like, why didn't you handle this kind of thing? Like, how did it get to this point where, you know, this person's parent is gross parts parent is writing to writing to the congressman. Um, excuse me. So Barrett flips. And he, it's gotten to the point where he takes Marx to Grossbart and says, you know, and he points to Marx and says, this is a real, like, this is a real man. Right. He chews him out and says, like, he has what it takes. He doesn't, he's not a complainer. And it's at this point that I want to get your opinion on it. Do you think that it's being... Do you think it's doing all the work that it has to do? Because I, I feel like you could, I feel like an un, 
if you read this at first blush, it seems like it's being very unsympathetic towards Grossbart and his friends. Do you think that it's because I, I feel like it's sufficiently nuanced where this Barrett is is obviously ignorant and is not fully appreciating what it's like to be Jewish. What or or, or those or and and I feel like if if you if you want to get into this, like Barrett might be the 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 uh far um what would you call it? Like, if if he's one end of the spectrum. Yeah, that's okay. That thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to think, but like, if Marx continues to be dehumanized in the way that Roth is painting the military as, that he might get to that point where he's like, a man is somebody that that grits their teeth and does what it takes to get the job done, to the point where you get to that point that Barrett's at. So in this in this scene where he's saying this is what a man is. What what are your what where is your mind at when it does those types of things in the story? Um, so I think it does a good job to show <clears throat> what you were saying about stripping the individuality off of people. Mm-hmm. He's like, you don't matter in this army because mm-hmm. everybody is in the army and we're all dealing with the same stuff. Mm-hmm. This guy's a man because he suffered through all that stuff and didn't complain and didn't make waves and mm-hmm. you know went through all this crazy stuff and has survived and won the awards and all that other stuff so that's why he's saying see this is a good man he stayed in line and did his job uh, and i think i think the linchpin of it is he th- he calls him a good jew yeah oh, and that, i think I that's that part i think that's a i'll see if i can find a specific part but i feel like what he what he's basically saying is that in this war where the jews are being oh that's right because he's saying He's he's talking about how, but does he say that? I thought it was the other way. Like he was, he like Gross Bart was trying to make the point of, you know, how else are we supposed to be good Jews if we're not allowed to eat the way we're supposed to? If we're not allowed to go to the right, you know, go to worship at the right times, whatever. Hmm. And um, the argument back is, but look at this guy. He's fought how many times and beat back Germans, and you know fought the guys that are killing tons of you for no reason. Mm -hmm. Like, isn't that also good for the Jewish people? Right. I, I think that's the, I think, I I don't know if he, if he says good Jews specifically, but but he's trying to say, isn't that also good for the Jews too? Right. I think that his, his main part is that this person is somebody who, um, has done, I think that's the way he puts it is, if anybody's done something for the Jewish people, yeah, it's this guy. It's this guy, and that's when you get into a strange thing. It's a strange um, part part of the American experience is that immigrants here are sacrificing something mm-hmm. because you become an American, right? And Americans do what it takes to make America great, right? And so you have this dual thing of you're promised the fact that you have freedom to be who you are, to be here. Who you are but then you also are now American something else. And so there's those, those I think, and that's, that's what I think this short story does more than anything is that it shows that there's 
these individual instances where people are asked to sacrifice things. And within this story, what I think makes it strong is that Grossbart is not a good individual. No. Him, He's him, gaming the system. He's totally gaming the system. And right. he knows it. Yeah. And, the, and him as a character, you are, it's actually making you... Because I think if he was a, a more noble person, it would be less of a... Like, it would be less thought-provoking. Because what you're really showing is a realistic teenager yeah. who's being put in the war... Will do anything he can to get out of to get out of work, to get out of dying. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, can you blame him? Really? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things that, like, realistically, this is what you know, uh, 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 a nineteen a nineteen year old who was just shoved into this situation and told you're going to go fight in Japan now. Yeah. I I don't blame him. At some point, they're going to go through this type of thing, and a young person is probably more willing to push for their individuality than somebody who is older, had more experience. So you have somebody who is a leader in the military who got there by sacrificing a lot um, and is a blowhard. (laughs) And you have somebody who is immature and naive and trying to use his Jewishness to get as much slack as he can. But then somebody that's right there in the middle who remembers what it was like to be Jewish and is trying to preserve this sense of innocence but knows that in order to become a man, you have to make a lot of sacrifices, even of your individuality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that within this one scene, you get that like, you know, he's doing something for the Jewish people. And this is what you have to be like in order to be a good Jewish American boy. Well, that's why I felt bad for one of the other guys. Cause the, there's another guy that actually was trying to still be a faithful Jew uh-huh. that the, literally the food was making him ill. Like, he wasn't eating well because he, his diet changed so drastically and he was sick from it. Like, mm. that guy I felt bad for. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that guy. Yeah, I was trying to remember because because Grossbart is the one that makes so many of the decisions, it's hard to picture the two others as more nuanced characters. But I think that other guy, if Grossbart hadn't been pushing everybody, uh-huh. would have suffered it. He'd have been like, right. okay, I'm in the army. Yeah, so it makes sense. I know point. I have to give this up, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to suffer it quietly, as opposed right. to Grossbart keeps pushing him into, no, but we have rights. We should be able to do this, you right. know? So it, it 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 makes the point that because there is a Grossbart that w- is trying to stick up for this, you start noticing that these, these other characters are suffering silently, and that there are a lot of cultures like this. Like, I know that's one of the big, uh, that's one of the lyrics in Comfortably Numb, and I think a point that uh, Roger Waters is trying to make, we, we're probably going to do that sometime soon. Um, but the whole idea is that uh, the British way is running and bearing it, basically. And so he, there's this, when it comes to surviving war, there's just some things that you do. And then later on, you might realize, oh, I gave up so much so that just to survive that time. And part of that is your individuality and the, these things. So it's showing you that a less a less um, confident character who has to have this other guy fight tooth and nail and even be like opportunistic in order for him to even try to like you know do those things that he legitimately is devout about and like wants to 
if he can to keep kosher and all this stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, Barrett makes that comparison and uh, Marx kind of shoots him out and says like, um, like, what are you doing? When, because he finds out gross part, he's like, wait, did your dad even speak English? English? Yeah. And so Grossbart admits, you know, I wrote the letter, but I'm really doing it for my friends. Yeah. And so he's like, what he does, and, and it's kind of a, a, an interesting twist, is that he, Grossbart admits that, or no, he doesn't admit anything. What he does is <laughs> he writes another letter that's supposedly from his father that's saying, you know, I talked yeah, to Marx my... is the bomb and you should give him a commendation and all yeah. this stuff because he's trying and to also, butter up his officer. And, and not... also I convinced my son oh, my to grin and bear it. And right. Eat the eat the slop that you know. Eat this you guys slop. feed them. You know. Oh my goodness. Um, I so, think gross part a lot. <laughs> really do. Well, well, we'll get into that in our in our final thoughts. Um, but uh, gross part commends Marx to the congressman, and we get a little bit of a snippet of Marx dreaming of his future. And I wrote it. I wrote down that it was kind of like a uh, cosmopolitan one. Hmm. Because he talks about, like, I'm going to go see Broadway plays. Oh, yeah. It talks about, like... He starts finally thinking, oh, I'm going to go home. I, yeah. I can actually live like a real person it's, it's, again. I, you can get past three pages of a novel. Which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah. So it's all... But, but Because but, his life has been survival for so long. All of those right. other things are just but what But what's interesting is that all those things are also detached from, um, from his heritage. That There's nothing ethnic about any of the right. stuff. And it's also all about, like, I can start a family. And well, he talks about, like, seeing women and stuff like that. So it's all about, like, this future thing. And it's uh, this kind of, like, American dream type stuff. Right. Where, like, it's all very, like, you know, I'll go see shows and read and, you know, date and all the stuff. And then all of a sudden, Gross Bart pops his head back out and he's like, Oh, by the way, my uh, aunt says that she's going to put on a Seder for me. And, you know, we have this small time before we're going to find out if we're going to get deployed. So, you know, even though it's it's a week late, could you sign me a pass out? He hates this guy. <laughs> so yep. he's like, nope. how about no? And then Gross Bart's crying and he's like, you know, I, I can't give this up. I can't be anything other than Jewish. That's who I am. And he, he guilts him, you know, through and through, and finally gets him to write a pass. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Fishbine and... <laughs> oh, hey, I ran into these guys on the way out. Can you get them yeah, on the Yeah, apparently they too? were going to see a movie, but they got back in Which time. Which I think was a lie. Yeah, probably. Um, and so <laughs> he writes him a pass, and he writes them a pass. And, and he's like, bring me back some food. Yeah, bring me back some gefilte fish, and I'll, you know, forgive you for everything. But then <laughs> uh, he finds out because they've been asking. Another thing, Grossport's been asking is, what like where are, they where are we going to get deployed? And he keeps telling, like, I don't know. If I knew, he would know because then that means Everybody we're probably knew. leaving tomorrow. Um, but he kind of overhears the rumor is they're going to be deployed to the Pacific, um, and he doesn't really have anything to. Um, you know, to, that makes this solid. But when Grossbart asks him, where are we going? You know, we're going to go to the Pacific. And he 
is asking for like, you know, try to get this change. And it's like, I don't even know if this is true yet, but then what does gross part have for him? Not gefilte fish. He has an egg roll. Yeah. And hey, those of you that follow Melissa's Twitter, you'll know that she tweeted out that line. That line about because <laughs> Cause they, he, he gets so pissed at him that he throws the egg roll out the window. And we get a cute line of like the person the guy that was, cleaning up the next day. Yeah. It's just like, it's like, oh my egg God, roll. you got an egg roll. This is so awesome. It's a freaking actual egg roll. I was just so excited about that. I'm like, I'm so sorry. What are they feeding you I, in well, the I army? I wasn't sure if it was excitement or, or shock. That, like, we're, no, he, we're was, he was happy. He was like, holy crap, I got me an egg roll. That's fine. Um, I like that interpretation. Um, <laughs> so, like, he didn't even go to see his aunt. He just wanted to get signed yeah. out. And, uh, again, he's taking advantage of the whole this relationship that he thinks he has with Marx, which in the last kind of uh, darkly humorous twist, they find out everybody's going to get shipped out to the Pacific except for Gross Part. Right. Because he presumably finagled his way. he finagled his way by, I don't know if he, uh, I, I presumed that he faked a letter from Marx. Um, Possibly. No, I think he found a new... Or, or you he think found he found a new, a new contact in that? Right. So the idea, the idea being that, however he did it, Grossbart found a way to get uh, assignment in Monmouth, which ironically I think is where Stanley got stationed oh. during World War Two, and he writes about how it was an amazing, excuse me, uh, station because all, they were waiting for a naval battle that never came. <laughs> To the states, oh yeah. So it's like you're just stationed out there, and you're just like trying not to freeze to death. Um, and uh, that's actually in my as a tribute. That's in my next novel, Childish Things, where I, because I thought it was such a funny thing, like as a writer or a wannabe writer, to be stationed somewhere where you have absolutely nothing, nothing to do. Yeah, it's like hey, let me get some writing done. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, he gets stationed there, but since Marx is so pissed at him for again working trying to work this system. He stations, he says, like, let's pick the first person in the alphabet to go because, you know, my buddy, my my Jewish pal. Yeah. Um, had a friend killed in Europe and he really wants to go fight the Japs and whatever. Yeah. So sorry, I should be talking on that list on this podcast. But <laughs> well, that's how they would have no, that's that's said it. Um, so he unpulls the strings for him and uh, we get kind of an interesting ending because Grossbart is obviously like furious and is trying to again appeal to his um sensibilities he says um so the mark says i i stood outside the orderly room i heard Grossbart weeping behind me over in the barracks and the lighted windows i could see the boys in their t-shirts sitting on their bunks talking about their orders as they've been doing for the past two days with a kind of quiet nervousness they polished shoes shined belt buckles squared away underwear trying as best as they could to accept their fate. Behind me, Grossbart swallowed hard, accepting his, and then, resisting with all my will and impulse to turn and seek pardon for my vindictiveness, I accepted my own. So I feel like there's a, a kind of catharsis from this ending where it is kind of darkly humorous that he's like, you're coming with me, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're not going to get out of this thing. And that you do, I think, get the sense that he's doing this to be vindictive and that it's kind of like a punchy ending to like 
for their conflict to be like, I'm, you're going to. I don't think he's going. I think he's there to train. He's, he's been now stationed to train people at that camp and the trainees are going. Oh, okay. Right. I don't think he's going with them. So, yeah. So that, I think that's interesting because I, I, at first I I interpreted that last line as he's, he's accepted his fate because he's also going with them. But I think you could, regardless of where he's going. Right. It's more of a, it's it's a more existential. I am now this thing. Right. That like there are lines and I will try and do what I can do, but you don't gain the system like this. Right. And I think that that, I feel like this is a very, what this becomes very relevant to me in the sense that um, there's a lot of conversation nowadays about, I think with the prevalence of social media, we're starting to get, uh, a prevalence of um, voices that haven't been heard before, right? So I think a consequence of that is that people are starting to define themselves solely by the people group that they're a part of. And in it, you get amazing voices of clarity, but also you get a lot of this opportunistic thing. A good example of this is... Um, there was controversy because uh, comedian Tom Segura was using, he had a bit about there's words that you can't say anymore. One of those words is retarded, right? You just can't do it anymore. And the joke was not, I want to use this word. The joke was, you can't say that anymore. And this, this kind of faux like regret that, you know, that their, their language, the bit was about language changing over time. So a lot of people got upset over this and some I think have more, you know, if you have somebody in your, in your home that is mentally challenged, you probably have a little bit more of, you know, a right than, than anybody. But what was interesting was that somebody emailed him and said, you know what? We know that some of our outrage is manufactured, but you know what? We actually don't care. Like, if this gets our point across, our message across, it actually doesn't matter as much to us that you're not really a bigot. And he thought that that was shocking that somebody actually had the intellectual honesty to say that. Um, but I feel like that's part of a point that's being made in this story is that there's kind of like an idea that obviously you don't want to be ignorant and persecute and force people to give up their individuality lightly. Right. Like it's not something that is the ideal situation, but, but what, what this person creates and why I like about literature is that you get to explore this character represents a, a diabolical person who happens to be Jewish and is trying to use this as an opportunistic way right. to get out of work, to get out, to meet women, <laughs> to, um, just have a night out with his pals, and there's somebody who is like Barrett, who is completely about king and country, do what it takes to be a man, and then somebody right down the center who is trying to regain what it is like to be human right. <laughs> after having fought in the war, uh, but also realizes that in order to be a soldier, you need to to sacrifice things. And so you get what I think is a very good argument. This story wouldn't be worth reading if one of these characters is a caricature. 
Right. And it's just. And no, they were all very nuanced. They were all very deep, rounded out characters, mm. which is surprising. Like I said, because you, like you said, it was it's a short story, and they don't spend a lot of time mm-hmm. describing any of them. Right. But just the very quick interactions we get with each of them, you see deeply into all of them. Mm-hmm. So, what are your final thoughts? Uh, so. Like you said, I think it was a very good nuanced way of showing these things. I think it was important that none of them were caricatures. Mm. Um, is it true on the one hand that the army should be a little more understanding about, you know, maybe you should have kosher options. You're still in the States. It's not like you're overseas mm-hmm. where you might not have a choice. Right. And, but, and I think part of, to interrupt you for a second, part of what makes our country great is that you do have certain freedoms. Right. Right. And so what does it say about us if we are trying to, those freedoms, you know, trying to fight for them. Right. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, when you go overseas and you're in the middle of a firefight and you are on the front lines and you can't get like you eat what you get. Like there mm-hmm. are times when that's what you get. Well, right. this you don't have a choice anymore. And that's why I think in the army, they drill that into you. They, they strip you of who you are mm-hmm. because you have to be part of a machine to survive. You do. That's just how it is. And and I think we've started to learn that a lot now that people are coming back with all the issues that they come back with is mm-hmm. half of that is what they do to you to make you survive over there. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And I think it's I think it's a logical progression within the story. And I think very well done where at first it's like, okay, you like give them kosher options, let them do their do worship worship in the way that they want to worship. But then he's just trying to get out of doing work. Right. And so it very much reveals that's another good thing about literature <laughs> and, and when it's working well is that plot is a way to reveal character. Yeah. And so what they're revealing is that Grossbart has friends who might be and, so you're and actual wanting to be and, and like I said, the rabbi the rabbi's the the irony of the story puts the rabbi's thing excuse me, thing about um about the kosher options in a ironic kind of humorous right. light. But he seems genuine about right. what he's saying. Right. Whereas Grossbart, it reveals over time, is just trying to skirt skirt Everything. work, trying <laughs> to get, you know, um yeah. gain gain the system. Um and I think it does good about revealing that his character versus the struggle within the main character of I value my individuality and I value being a soldier. And those And two I like that kind of it wasn't about they didn't make it a crisis of faith for anybody. Mm-hmm. He wasn't accusing him of not believing in God. Right. He was accusing him of like abandoning the culture, mm-hmm. but not like, Oh, what well, kind of a, you know, you obviously are not obeying God anymore or whatever. Mm-hmm. The only weird religious part that I remember is them talking the the one guy's theory about the messiahs and everybody, mm-hmm. which I don't know how, I don't know if that's a thing. I was going to, that's one of the things I was going to ask uh, some Jewish friends of mine, if there, that's actually a theory. There is something that developed in the sixties, I think that was an offshoot of that concept, but I, it's definitely not mainstream. Okay. Um, from, from my limited knowledge, it doesn't seem to me like there's a church of the Messiah that everyone <laughs> uh, that I've heard of. I mean, I know people that think that about Jesus, but. Or about God in general. But I think but that like, that was another good self-revelatory thing. That it just seemed like he was making things up. Right. To, from my reading. Right. 
was that he was just trying or, to or trying to maybe sound religious mm-hmm. or something there. But I'm it, not I sure. think it also does embody a, a opinion of religion that he was trying to say us being Jewish is about the sanctity of our humanity and, and like sanctity of our individuality. We are Jewish. We are Israelites yeah. <laughs> and part of in which I mean, to some extent it's culture. true. The idea, the reason that they were given so many odd, the reason given in Leviticus for them mm-hmm. having that many weird rules is you are going to be different than everybody else. Right. And everybody's going to know that you're different. Right. So to some extent it's true. It's like, we are supposed to be different than them. But that, that actually comes across in, um, I think raisin in the sun is that there's a character that starts having atheist leanings and it seems like she's only doing it, um, to, to say like, I'm an individual. I'm not like my mother. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a thinker. I'm, if I'm going to come to religious beliefs, it's going to be because I want to. And it seems like a, a kind of naive thing. And it's not to say that the whole idea, they're not trying to paint a pastiche of that whole group of people. It's just saying that that, that happens among young people. Yeah. That they start thinking like, it is a, it well, is what a if common, we're all the Messiah? <laughs> it is a common thing around that, especially like you were saying, around the age that they are in the story, mm-hmm. that that's the kind of thing that they do. Right. Um, so yeah, those are our thoughts about uh, Defender of the Faith and Philip Roth. I, th- I feel like it was an interesting read to start learning about um, this author and interesting to read something from the Jewish experience. If you want to suggest something else uh, by somebody, a Jewish author, that would be interesting. We're, we made a, a, a statement before this podcast that we wouldn't just pigeonhole this is the Jewish episode right. or Native no. American episode or what have you. Um, but it was a, an interesting read. Yep. So write us at unboxingstorypodcast at gmail.com or check out my website at montos.com or follow John on his many streaming services. Yes. I'm at John Matos Writer at most things and we're at Unboxing Story on most things. Uh, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.